Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zeb Larson, and I'm here today to discuss Dr. Daniel Imbrevar's book, How to Hide an Empire. While many Americans continue to believe and to argue that the United States is not an empire, Dr. Imbrevar's book argues that not only is the United States an imperial power, but the country has consistently hidden its imperial nature by obfuscating its relationship with various overseas territories. By tracing the history of westward expansion, the annexation of Caribbean islands, and the relationship of the U.S. with its overseas territories, this book shows how the United States has managed to hide whole sections of the country from everyday view. Dr. Imrevar, thank you. Welcome to the program. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, I teach at Northwestern University, um, and I teach U.S. foreign relations, and I also teach global history. And this book, How to Hide an Empire, that we're talking about, in some ways, a combination of, of those. It's, it's both the United States dealing with the foreign and the United States in the world as well. Where did you do your early graduate work? Um, I did a, a PhD in, um, at UC Berkeley studying intellectual history under David Hollinger. Okay. What was your dissertation on? Uh, my dissertation was on U.S. foreign aid and anti-poverty strategies, um, some of which were domestic and how they related to each other. I, it became a book called Thinking Small that came out in 2015. Okay. And this current project, this book, uh, How to Hide an Empire, which yeah. is a really, really enjoyable read, uh, where did this come from? Uh, it's interesting. It, it came from um, partly from the dissertation research. Uh, one of the chapters that I'd written for Thinking Small was about, this was set in the Philippines and was about the Philippines. And I um, uh, it was about the post-colonial Philippines, but I, you know, in prepping for it, I, um, you know, of course, reading the history of the Philippines, I went to Manila to do archival research, and there was something really striking about that experience, about being in Manila. Um, I'd known, of course, uh, that Philippines had been a U.S. colony, and that there had been a long history of uh, imperialism there, and that there were still ongoing connections between the Philippines and the United States. But there was something about actually being in a place that suddenly I was not just reading the lyrics, but hearing the music. And, you know, so the place where I was, all these streets were named in Metro Manila. All these streets were named after you know, U.S. presidents, Van Buren, Eisenhower. And then they were named after uh, U.S. states and cities. And they were named after U.S. colleges. And then I would get on a bus or this sort of transit system, which is called a jeepney. And it's, it's based on, originally based on... Um, repurposed U.S. Army Jeeps, which are decorated in these really exciting ways. And then I'd take that bus and I'd go to um, the Ateneo de Manila University 
and I'd get off and I'd hear students speaking in what sounded to my Pennsylvania ears to be basically unaccented English. And, you know, you have that experience and you just think, oh, right, of course. I knew this all, but somehow I, you know, I'm now much more interested in it. Somehow it all clicked for me. Um, and then I got back uh, and I you know, wrote up my dissertation dutifully. And right after I finished it, I thought to myself, I would like to write something small about how to include the Philippines in U.S. history. So how to write U.S. history, how to do the U.S. history survey in a way that included the Philippines, not just in the lecture on 1898, but, but in, you know, in every moment. And, in the, in the, you know, when you're talking about the Depression, when you're talking about the Progressive Era, when you're talking about World War II. And I thought that I would just write a, a cute little teaching article. Um, and, and so I just, you know, started pulling all books off the shelf and tried to figure out a way to integrate what I knew about the Philippines into the U.S. history survey and the sort of mainstream uh, U.S. history. And the more I did it, the more I just got absolutely fascinated by this. And then I started getting really interested in how you might incorporate Puerto Rico and Hawaii uh, and Guam. And, and, you know, before I knew it, I, I, I started to feel like the understanding of, of U.S. history that I'd had, even as someone who was trained in, you know, international and transnational history, even as someone who was already interested in empire and interested in Asia, somehow just U.S. history was starting to look distinctly different to me, um, weirder. You know, and, and, and things that had been unimportant to me before peripheral events suddenly seemed really important. And on the other hand, uh, familiar episodes or familiar artifacts, things that I thought I knew the story about, now suddenly seemed to be strange uh, because I knew a different story. And the reason is that uh, the histories of these artifacts or episodes had gone through the territories and since, or, you know, the overseas territory of the United States. And since I hadn't actually really been paying enormous attention to the overseas territory of the United States, I had, had missed so much of those histories. Uh, so the, the, the object of the book uh, is to retell U.S. history, but to do it not with the understanding that the United States is just the um, contiguous blob that is bounded on the north and south by Mexico and Canada, on the east and west by the oceans, uh, which, by the way, are the borders of the United States for only three years of its history. Um, <laughs> And, but instead to tell the history of what some people in the late 1890s called the greater United States. Um, and that was a term that they used to indicate that the United States went far beyond what people sometimes in the territory call the mainland uh, and extended out into the Caribbean, into the Pacific, up into the Arctic. Uh, and that's still true today. I mean, you know, if you actually look at the land that is under U.S. jurisdiction, places where the U.S. flag flies, whether it's colonies or military bases, you're looking at a really extensive geographical formation. And so my goal was, you know, can I tell the history of that? So tell me a little bit about the process of writing this book, because it, it covers so much ground. It's sort of unlike a, a more narrow academic monograph that might just burrow into one particular episode. You really cover the entirety of the history of the United States here. Yeah. And that was based on a set of conversations I had that were really transformative. Um, with an agent, a literary agent, who um, you know, I'd come to, or I'd, you know, he'd made an appointment with me, and we were just chatting, and you know, I started telling him all these stories, you know, all these things that you know I hadn't known or I hadn't really understood how important they were, and suddenly they seemed important to me, and he got very excited about this too, uh, and and then he said, well, what are you going to do? And I said, well, you know, I've done all this archival research, and I'm really interested in world, you know, the 1940s, so World War II is this pivotal 
uh, decade. It's a time when the United States' relationship to territory changes. And, you know, so I'm going to write a, a monograph. And it's going to be, you know, six, five, six chapters. And I had, had it all mapped out. I'd even started writing some of the chapters. And, you know, he said, well, I think that we could try to do a commercial book about this. And I said, okay, great. Well, you know, here's my six chapters, and, and that's, that's what it's going to be. And then he came back to me and he said, no, you can't just do it like that. You know, I need to know the whole story, you know, when these places were acquired and all this kind of thing. And, and I was a little resistant at first. And he said, look, this has got to do it like a lecture class, right? So, you know, short chapters, but really spanning the whole thing. Tell me everything I need to know. You know, once I see the United States as the greater United States and not just as the mainland, redo the whole of U.S. history or, you know, as many parts of it as you want to do. Uh, and that was a, that was transformative. I thought, oh, that's right. Yeah. And that's a book I deeply want to write. So it starts in 1784 with the formal independence of the United States from Britain. And it goes to the present. Uh, and as a result, it was, I mean, such a joy to write because uh, some of the work was archival and I found some things and I, you know, I was just sort of cackling over these finds. I thought, oh my God, this is so great. But a lot of it was just being able to draw on. And of course I had to, because I was, you know, doing such a large time span and going, you know, ranging over so many different places. Uh, a lot of it was just drawing on all this amazing work that's been done and that seemed to me to be profoundly relevant to the telling of U.S. history. Um, so I, you know, it was just a sort of spree as I was, you know, in the library pulling books on, off the shelf and thinking, you know, okay, you know, I, you know, I know the story about Puerto Rican history, but my God, you know, this changes how I am to think about the Truman administration or something like that. Um, so it was a, I think partly because I was uh, surrounded in, or in such good company of so much good work, it was a real joy to write. It was a joy to read too. Oh, I'm so uh, glad. I, yeah, I, I very much envy uh, your students, actually, because I, I could sort of hear you lecturing in parts, and I just thought, wow, this, he must be really popular on campus. Everybody well, must want to take because, his lecture courses. <laughs> partly because the, of this you know, idea of, of the literary agent, which is that to write it as a lecture course, actually, I got to road test a lot of these things. And, and some of the chapters started as lectures before they became uh, chapters. And mm -hmm. so it's, I, I strove for a conversational tone, but I mean, one of the reasons that I would do that is that I would just, you know, get up and give those chapters as lectures over and over again and see what worked and what didn't. Um, and, and I think there's something really nice about that because that is the tone of voice that we use when we're trying to draw people in, people who aren't historians and we're trying to, you know, convey to them how excited we are. So I, you know, that's, that's the move that we make when we're lecturing in front of undergraduates. And so, what I would try to do with the prose and the tone and the structure of the book was to take that approach to history and then actually get it onto the page. Mm. So let's pick up in 1784. You've got this formally independent United States. What's its relationship to territorial expansion, to the early Native Americans? And, and then how does that start to change in the coming decades? I'm so glad you asked. Well, Here's something that's remarkable that I think people don't really talk about. Uh, the name of the country at its founding is the United States of America, which strongly suggests, I mean, it's a description, right? It tells you what it is. And, and the, the description says that this is a union, uh, which suggests a sort of, you know, voluntarily entered, in, entered into compact uh, of states in the Americas. And uh, that name, it turns out, is wrong from day one. So uh, it's, you have to do the math a little, a little bit on this, but uh, by, the, by 1784 and by the time the United States uh, formally receives its independence, so the, the treaty that uh, grants it sovereignty 
has been ratified by both the United States and by Britain, and all of that goes through, by that day, uh, the United States government has also redivided up its land so that it's not entirely held as states. And there have been sort of overlapping claims of you know what the states, uh, the individual states controlled. Uh, but rather, it's a country that is composed of states and territories. And that, so that was true on day one, and that's been true on every single day of U.S. history. It has never been uh, entirely a union of states. It's been well, not quite a union, uh, and it's never been just states alone. It's always been states and territories. And so, and you know, pretty quickly uh, into the 1780s, that territory, that sort of zone of territories, makes up a really big part of the of the new country, uh, because once all the states sort of regularize their claims and, you know, stop, you know, Georgia stops pretending that it owns all of the land all the way out to the western edge of the country, which is Mississippi, in Georgia's case, uh, it, it turns out that non-state territory is 45% of the new United States. That's a lot of land. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's kind of unclear what's going to happen with that space. Uh, one of the reasons it's unclear is the Constitution has extraordinarily little to say about the territories. It goes on at great length about, you know, procedures for elections and division of power and the branches of government. Uh, but then, you know, for what would soon become 45% of the country's area, it just says that the power to, you know, regulate uh, the territories lies with Congress. And there's very little sense of what's going to happen there. Uh, but the reason that there is that state territorial division um, is racial. It has to do with who lives in the United States and who is considered to be a real part of the country and who's eligible for U.S. citizenship, uh, the land that is uh, territorial, so, you know, held as territories, uh, is land that is uh, often under uh, Native American title uh, still, and it is land that the federal government is very eager to, at first, prevent white settlers from getting going into for fear that those white settlers will trigger wars with Native Americans, uh, wars, and then will sort of drag the government in uh, with them. Uh, the government is also afraid that the white settlers will squat on land that's owned by Eastern speculators, including George Washington, uh, and then you know devalue the um, you know well, the, the, the land claims that are owned uh, by uh, Eastern men of affairs. Uh, so it's it's a tense relationship at first between the states and the territories. I think our fantasy, you know, if you just you know read a U.S. history textbook and you know, haven't thought a lot about a lot, about it a lot since, is that the United States was always vigorously expansive and that uh, the leaders of the country were just, you know, impatient to send, you know, all the Daniel Boones out into the wilderness as soon as they possibly could. But actually there's a real tension uh, between uh, the, the men who rule the country and uh, men like Daniel Boone who, who seek to uh, settle in the, in the territories, often to escape, you know, indebtedness or other kinds of, um, you know, uncomfortable relationships with uh, powerful men in the East. Um, and that changes over time. You asked how it, it changes. And, and there's, there's one really interesting change, which is this. Uh, at the very beginning of the nation's founding, it seems like the territories are going to be ruled as sort of semi-colonies. Um, if you actually look at the Northwest Ordinance, um, which, is, which governed how part of the territories were to be run, but then also became the pattern for uh, governing um, some other territories, uh, it's fairly authoritarian in the early stages. Right. Uh, the, the territories have to pass through a set of stages. There are population triggers, but none of them are automatic. Uh, and until it is ready for statehood, as judged by the existing states, um, it is ruled in a fairly despotic way. And um, 
men like Thomas Jefferson said that out loud. Um, you know, they, they understood that uh, what they were envisioning for the territories was something not quite different um, from what they'd just been complaining about Britain had been doing uh, to the North American territories. Um, what changes is this? The population growth of white settlers is so extraordinary, unprecedented, historically unprecedented. Uh, there hadn't been a country that had grown in its population so quickly. Part of it is immigration, but really a lot of it is just a fire hose of fecundity, just shooting settlers up and down the North American <laughs> continent. And um, that population pressure is so great that the ability of um, leaders, East Coast leaders, to control uh, Western settlement and to have it happen as a sort of stately pace under the control, under elite control, that breaks down by the 1820s and 1830s in the Jacksonian period. Uh, and you start to see a country that is no longer um, really reticent about quick westward settlement and is actually really eager uh, to see settlers um, displace Native Americans quickly uh, and to fill up the borders of the country. Now, that's filling up the borders of the country, but there's another trigger for expansion, um, and it's it's quite literally bird shit. Oh, uh, God. And, yeah. and bird shit is so tremendously significant. Tell us why it is and what the effect is. I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> uh, so I, I said that the borders of the country, as they're popularly imagined, the sort of contiguous borders of the country, uh, those are only really the borders of the United States for three years in its history. So uh, they become the borders uh, after a period of westward territorial expansion. They become the borders in 1854 with the Gadsden Purchase, which completes a set of acquisitions um, that the United States had made directly or indirectly from Mexico. Three years later, uh, the United States starts expanding overseas. And it expands overseas uh, in order to take a series of dozens of, and eventually nearly a hundred, uh, of guano highlands. And, you know, I mean, this is just one of these things that sounds comical, and it, it is, uh, but but it's, it's also deadly serious because, okay, why does the United States need, what is a guano island, and why do you, does the United States need guano islands? Well, it turns out that um, East Coast farms are suffering from soil exhaustion. And the reason is that um, if you're doing a sort of traditional, you know, old McDonald style of agriculture, where there's the, you know, the, the cows and the chickens and everyone's moving around and you're rotating your crops and you're mainly um, consuming your crops uh, on, on the farm or locally, uh, there's a whole set of agricultural, traditional agricultural strategies in play uh, that will return nutrients, particularly nitrogen or nitrates, to the soil. Uh, so that's why you rotate crops. That's why having animals uh, sort of eat things and then um, poop in the field, that sort of returns nitrogen to the soil as well. Having humans poop in the field, that does it as well. Uh, and so there's a you know whole sort of system for managing nitrogen flows and making sure that um, nitrates get back into the soil and other important nutrients do too. The more you do industrial agriculture, the more you grow one crop over and over and over again, and then you export that crop. So basically, from a nutrient perspective, sucking the nutrients out of the soil, putting them in the crop, and then putting that crop on ships or on boats or you know just getting it on railroads and getting it away from the original land where it, it grew, uh, you'll start to see the soil become exhausted. Uh, it will have fewer nutrients and it will not grow crops as well. And in the East Coast, uh, you know, in the mid-19th century, we're talking about land that could once support, you know, 20 bushels of wheat on an acre suddenly supporting, you know, 18, 16, 15, you know, down to 10 
bushels of wheat. I mean, so that's that's absolutely terrifying from the perspective of 19th century agriculture. Uh, and so farmers scramble to find all kinds of things that they can do to restore the fertility of the soil. Uh, they look for all kinds of what they call soil amendments, uh, things that can be added to the soil. And they, they're very creative about this. So, um, you know, bone dust and uh, manure, well, manure is a classic one, uh, urine and, you know, the, uh, whatever's, uh, the, whatever's being used in the tannery, any, you know, excess from there they can put on the crops. They're, they're just trying to put all organic material that they can find on the fields. But the one thing that works really well, like better than anything else by far, is guano. So what is guano? Guano is uh, dried uh, animal feces, or sorry, dried bird or bat feces that's used as fertilizer. Uh, and the reason it works so well is that, uh, and it's particularly bird guano that U.S. farmers are interested in, is that you have to imagine um, birds on a dry island in the Pacific or the Caribbean and they're, you know, eating anchovies or something like that. And they're landing on the island and they're pooping on the island. And because the island doesn't have a lot of rain, it just stays there. And now imagine that happening for decades and centuries. And the, just the very rock of the island is just piling up with bird feces and drying and hardening in the sun. This is an extremely rich fertilizer. And it's the kind of thing that just, just a little bit on the fields does a lot. So there's all these great, stories uh, in the press, these tall tales about, you know, the farmer who, uh, you know, was punishing his 10-year-old boy and locked him in the barn where there was a pile of guano. And then he unlocks the barn the next morning and it's like a full-grown man with a beard. Uh, so, you know, it's like this, this is the power of guano. Um, so uh, guano becomes a matter of urgent uh, economic business in the United States. And a lot of people start, you know, caring a lot about guano. Uh, it comes up in numerous presidential addresses. Uh, addresses to Congress, you know, what are we going to do about the guano question? Uh, that comes up in Congress freak, surprisingly frequently. Uh, and the the problem is that it's actually kind of hard to get the stuff, right? Because to, to get it, you have to have an island that is where birds land, but where there is not a lot of rain. And there's not a lot of places where that happens. Um, there's the Chincha Islands in Peru, which are, have a source of extraordinarily rich guano, but uh, they're under the control of a British-Peruvian monopoly which is basically, you know, able to jack the price up, which is sort of the OPEC crisis for, you know, 19th century agriculture and almost leads to war uh, between the United States and Peru. Um, but what the United States does instead is it, 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 it creates this law, this kind of incredible law that passes this law in 1856, such that um, anyone who comes across an uninhabited guano-containing island can personally annex it to the United States. And the president has to approve. But, you know, you can, you can start, you know, annexation proceedings right there, annex it to the United States, uh, and that, will, that island will become part of the United States, which is, I mean, incredible, because every other territorial expansion of the United States had been just agonized over in Congress. Should we take Louisiana? What do we do with the people there? And this is just, have a good time, folks. If you find an island, just, just, just call dibs on it, and the United States Navy will back you up, which the United States Navy ultimately does. And so by the end of the 19th century, uh, or 1902 or so, uh, the United States has claims on 94 uninhabited guano islands. And this is the first stage of U.S. overseas expansion. It becomes a legal basis uh, for U.S. overseas expansion. There's some legal cases that sort of work out of the constitutionality of this. And it's, it's the first thing that, that establishes that the United States is not going to be 
just a union of states in America, uh, that the United States is going to go beyond the Americas. So while this is happening, this, this goes, it seems like in earnest for close to over 60 years, but then there, there's a new kind of imperialism brewing and it's, it's really well personified through Teddy Roosevelt's character. What does he want out of empire and what does he end up doing? Yeah. So the thing about the Guano Islands is that they were uninhabited. And there's a little argument about Congress about, you know, can we take inhabited Guano Islands? Because there are uh, Pacific Islands that have indigenous populations that are also good sources of phosphates and guano. And uh, Congress is really nervous about this because that would be to engage in a different kind of imperialism, right? Not just taking land, but, you know, ruling distant people. And there's a lot of um, concern about this throughout the 19th century. Whenever, And that's why it's hard for the United States to expand whenever it does. It has to have an argument about um, what do we do with the people on this new, you know, in this new area? Will they become part of the United States? Will they become incorporated into the body politic? Um, and there's a, it's, it's interesting, there's a really interesting tension between the um, imperialist expansionary tendencies of the United States uh, and a racist desire to exclude non-white people or more non-white people from entering the United States. And that tension is what prevents the United States, for example, when it goes to war with Mexico and defeats Mexico, from taking more of Mexico than it could have, because had it taken more of Mexico, it would have taken more Mexicans, um, who would then be in some ways incorporated into the United States. So uh, that balance between um, trying to take land for white settlers and their black slaves, but trying not to take too many inhabited lands or or densely inhabited lands, that had been the operative um, deal for the United States throughout most of the 19th century. And that's under under the deal under which the Guano Islands were deemed to be acceptable. But in 1890, famously, as Frederick Jackson Turner noted, uh, the United States' frontier had in some way run out, um, that the white settlement had been serious enough and prodigious enough that it had, I mean, not completely, but it had, there was a sense that it had filled up of the available space uh, in the contiguous United States, uh, and that if the United States wanted to grow, it would have to grow in a different kind of way. Um, there, you know, different people took different lessons from Frederick Jackson Turner's famous article, the Significance of the Frontier in American History. Uh, but Teddy Roosevelt understood the lesson to be very clear. The frontier is extremely important to the United States, to its identity, to what it is. Uh, and if the United States is running out of frontier uh, on the North American mainland, then it should just make more frontier. Uh, and so Teddy Roosevelt became, under this understanding, a really... Um, uh, enthusiastic, buoyantly enthusiastic imperialist, eager for the United States to prove itself by engaging in uh, wars of conquest uh, and, to, and to, to claim more space for itself. And uh, it was during the sort of crisis of Spain's colonial crisis in the 1890s, as Spain was facing rebellions in Cuba, uh, in the Philippines, and to a lesser degree, but a serious degree in Puerto Rico, that Teddy Roosevelt, who was then the Assistant Secretary of the Navy, saw an opening and and pushed hard for the United States to involve itself in the war uh, or in a crisis and to turn that into a war, and also for that war to be not just in Cuba, which is where most of the U.S. attention was at the time, but for it also to be in the Philippines. Uh, there's this incredible moment in history, and you it's, it's one of these moments where you wonder, like, if this day had happened differently, would U.S. history have been fundamentally different? Uh, so Teddy Roosevelt is the assistant secretary of the Navy and his boss, this guy, John Long is a sort of a quiet grandfatherly fellow, uh, takes the afternoon off to visit an osteopath and 
Teddy Roosevelt, you know, he's not a bureaucracy guy, right? He doesn't follow a lot of rules, but he gets, there's one rule that he really grasps, which is this. Technically, when his boss goes away, that makes him the acting secretary of the Navy. <laughs> and so, like, the, literally the guy just takes an afternoon off, and Teddy Roosevelt's like, okay, I guess I'm the secretary of the Navy now. And he just, like, issues, like, order after order. Okay, you know, stock uh, the ships full of coal. Uh, you know, uh, requisitions Congress for, uh, you know, uh, more men, you know, for in case of a war, and then orders um, the U.S. Pacific Fleet to go to, uh, uh, sorry, sorry, the Asiatic Fleet, uh, to go to Hong Kong and prepare to attack Manila in case the United States gets in a war with Spain, which from the perspective of, you know, if anyone following the war in the newspaper, you think Manila, like this is a war about Cuba. This is a Cuban crisis. What does the Philippines have to do with it? But from Teddy Roosevelt's perspective, the larger he could make this war, the better. Um, his boss comes back and is sort of aghast to see what Roosevelt's done. He's like, "You were supposed to look after the you were supposed to look after the office, and and now you've laid the groundwork for a transoceanic war." Um, but partly because of the you know McKinley administration's uh, timidity about uh, confronting public opinion, which was fairly bellicose at the time, uh, he didn't reverse the orders, uh, which would have been a sort of presumably a sign of weakness. Uh, and so when the United States finally, through a series of fairly contingent events, ends up actually going to war with Spain in Cuba, uh, the first thing that happens, the way that war starts, the, the war uh, between the United States and Spain, is that the United States attacks the Philippines, attacks Spain in, at Manila, uh, in Manila Harbor, and sinks the Spanish fleet there. And suddenly the United States has, uh, or it has the possibility to have a very large populated colony um, that is far larger uh, than, you know, geographically, but in terms of population, uh, than anything I think, you know, a lot of people would have uh, continents contemplating uh, in, in the 1870s or the 1880s. So then now the United States has this question of all these new territories that it has to relate to that are peopled, unlike Guano Islands or right. or Western territories in the continental mainland that presumably will be filled up with white people. Um, right. Now they have to relate to Puerto Rico and the Philippines and these other places. And what does that relationship look like? It's not clear. Uh, it's really not obvious uh, what the relationship should look like. So um, in Puerto Rico and uh, in Hawaii and in the Philippines, uh, there's a lot of interest among the local populations of becoming states and of becoming U.S. citizens. And there's kind of an expectation. Okay, well, now we're part of the United States. Okay, great. Sign me up. Uh, you know, whether I wanted this or not, at least I would like the benefits of it. Uh, and so there's some political activity toward, uh, you know, in federalist parties. That's what the uh, name of the uh, parties are in um, both uh, the Philippines and Puerto Rico uh, to to be included uh, as as states and to have the the, the people who live in, in these in these territories become citizens. Um, there's not a lot of support for that on the mainland. Uh, there's a vociferous debate about what is to be done with these military conquests, whether they should be turned into annexations, uh, or whether uh, the you know Philippines should ultimately be freed. Uh, the whole point of this war was to free Spain's colonial subjects from the Spanish tyranny, so shouldn't um, Cuba, shouldn't Puerto Rico, uh, shouldn't uh, the Philippines then go free. Um, and it uh, ultimately, the imperialists win, and um, the United States annexes, um, annexes Puerto Rico, it annexes uh, the Philippines, it annexes Guam from Spain, and at the same time, it sort of on a shopping spree takes the non-Spanish lands of Hawaii and American Samoa, and then it occupies Cuba for a number of years as well, although it does not annex Cuba. But 
it takes the courts a while to figure out what that means, right? What it means for the people who are now U.S. nationals who live under the flag of the United States. Are they Americans? Are they Americans in the full sense of the term? Um, there's an infamous set of cases called uh, the Insular Cases, which which worked which worked this out. And and what they decide is that uh, all of the Spanish territories uh, and American Samoa are um, they're in the United States. They're part of the United States, but they're not covered by the Constitution. So the, the Constitution is the law of the land, as one justice puts it, but these places are not in the land, or at least are not in the land for constitutional purposes. So that means, and this is still good law today, um, that you know, if you are born in uh, an overseas territory, you don't, you're not covered, but since you're not covered by the Constitution, you don't have, for example, uh, the Fourth Amendment right to, or uh, the, the 14th, sorry, the 14th Amendment does not make you a citizen by birth. Um, and that's why even today in American Samoa, you can be born in the United States, but because you're not covered by the 14th Amendment, you're not born a citizen, you're actually just born a U.S. national. And um, people born in American Samoa are not, by virtue of their birth, citizens of the United States. That's a that's part of this um, sort of carving out of an extra t- constitutional zone of the country. That's one way in which the United States accommodated itself to the logic of empire. Mm. This goes on for several decades, and then there's a earth-shattering event that sort of affects everybody in this period, and that's World War II. But it has yeah. a special effect on these territories and these parts that aren't the mainland. How does how does the war affect Puerto Rico, the Philippines, Alaska, Hawaii, and so on? Yeah, I'm glad you asked about that. I, I've noticed that, um, you know, to the degree that U.S. historians who don't focus on empire um, or focus on territorial empire know about the overseas territories, generally most of what they know is takes place in 1898 or the immediate, immediate aftermath. Mm. The acquisition of these places, uh, the bloody war fought in the Philippines uh, to pacify the Philippines and to um, make real the United States' ambition to annex the Philippines. Um, but there's a lot less sort of in you know U.S. textbooks and overviews and surveys about this incredible moment, World War II. Um, World War II is a interesting moment of colonial crisis. Uh, it, it puts the colonies in deep peril. And it also, as wars often do, exposes the priorities of the state. So um, all of the Pacific, inhabited Pacific colonies of the United States are attacked by Japan. Uh, Puerto Rico is sort of harassed by U-boat warfare. And as actually there's moments when Puerto Ricans are having a really hard time just getting food because um, you know they're just not getting the food shipments from the mainland that they need. Uh, and there's a serious, um, you know, almost starvation crisis in Puerto Rico. Um, but what's so interesting about this, from my perspective, um, is that it, it's a moment when the mask falls, right? It's a moment when the priorities of the men in Washington just become crystal clear, and and their their sense of what's part of the United States and what's not is is just instantly revealed, and it, it's revealed from the first moment. So the United States is drawn into the war, famously by Pearl Harbor, uh, by the Japanese attack on a base in Hawaii. Um, but actually, that's not the only thing the Japanese attacked. Within hours, uh, you know, within a single day, the day thing is a little complicated and I'll explain it in a second, uh, the Japanese also attacked Guam, the Philippines, and Wake Island. So, so uh, Hawaii is not the only target uh, that the Japanese strike. And the Philippines actually uh, suffers military damage that is uh, equal to, according to the Army's history, and arguably worse 
uh, than what is suffered uh, on the attack on Pearl Harbor. And it comes to Roosevelt to sort of narrate this event, right? What happened? You know, he gives this famous speech, the you know, date that shall live in infamy speech. Uh, and when he first is drawing up that speech, he says, what happened is the Japanese attacked the Philippines and they attacked Hawaii. Uh, and then you can see him like thinking it over. And, you know, is this going to work? Is this going to fly? Is this going to be a call to arms for, uh, you know, a nation that had been to this point reluctant to engage in, uh, in the war? And, and then he crosses out prominent references uh, to the Philippines and he sticks the Philippines on this sort of, uh, in the back of the speech on this just uh, list, terse list of targets that includes British targets and includes Thailand. Uh, and there's no sense of uh, what parts of these, which ones of these targets are U.S. territory or not. And he doubles down on Hawaii. And then he makes another edit and he inserts the word American in front of the Hawaiian island Oahu that has been struck. Just to underscore, you can see what he's doing, right? He's worried that people in, this country, in the country won't actually think of the Philippines as U.S. territory uh, and, and won't think that an attack there merits the response of U.S. armed forces. Uh, and he's also worried well, they might not even think that about Hawaii. So he you know, kind of has, has to really tell his audience, no, this is the American island of Oahu that has been struck. It's a place where American lives were lost. Uh, and you know, he can't quite make that or he doesn't make that uh, claim about the Philippines. Um, and, you know, maps and atlases, maps from the time often don't include these places uh, on maps of the United States. Atlases, world atlases often still uh, list uh, Hawaii and the Philippines and Puerto Rico and Alaska even as foreign. Uh, so he's, he's not wrong to, to sense that there's some nervousness in the country about whether these parts of the United States really are fully in the United States. Uh, and that logic uh, of, of differentiating between what's in the United States and what's really in the United States uh, is a logic that has just lived throughout the war. So uh, in preparation for the war, understanding that Japan would probably attack, the United States did very little to fortify its Western colonies. And we have opinion polls from around the time and people are asked, you know, should the U.S. defend Hawaii or should the U.S. defend Guam? And, you know, even in the case of Hawaii, the answer is barely yes. It's a fair majority of people coming out for that. In the cases of the the West territories like Philippines and Guam uh, and American Samoa, there's just not a lot of mainland interest in committing the U.S. forces to defending these parts of the United States, despite the fact that the people who live on them are U.S. nationals and in some cases U.S. citizens. Um, and then throughout the war, that logic holds. Um, one of the things that the United States does is it fights the war under a Europe first strategy, um, under the understanding that the, the, the primary threat, or at least uh, the, the, the first threat to be uh, fully confronted is a threat to Europe, and the Pacific theater will be uh, relatively be put on the back burner uh, until Hitler is dealt with. Um, well, okay, but uh, the, Japan has not just attacked the United States' Pacific colonies, uh, as it, other Pacific colonies, as it did Hawaii. Japan has actually occupied and conquered them. So uh, Japan uh, conquers the Philippines, Japan conquers Guam, Wake Island, uh, which is uh, has no indigenous population, but has a serious, um, you know, population of uh, workers uh, and and soldiers who, who were on that island, and Japan actually uh, conquers the western tip of Alaska as well. And all of these parts of the U.S. empire are under the Japanese flag, uh, even though the United States still claims sovereignty over them. And the cost of this Europe first strategy is basically abandoning the. Um, the Pacific territories and allowing them to be conquered by Japan. And that, that uh, conquest we now know 
is absolutely brutal. So, you know, summary executions in the street for minor traffic violations and those executions could include beheading, um, you know, sexual assaults on, you know, mass scale, um, you know, confiscation of property, starvation, disease. I mean, it was really an absolutely lethal time uh, in the Pacific Empire. And we have the writings and the diaries of people who lived through this and they're just thinking, what is the United, like, what is this deal? I, I thought that the whole point is we were, we thought we were part of the United States. And that should mean that the U.S. military should come to our aid. Um, the Commonwealth president of the Philippines, uh, Manuel Quezon, um, so he's sort of akin to a state governor and then he's um, uh, in charge of the Philippines, but he's also subordinate to the U.S. president, um, has this way of putting it where he's watching this all happen. And he's hearing Roosevelt's radio speeches where Roosevelt is talking about the need to defend England, which from Kesson's perspective is intolerable because, you know, England is an imperialist power, whereas the Philippines is actually part of the United States. And he says, I'm paraphrasing slightly, but not very much. He says, you know, I couldn't believe you know, how, 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 how typically American is what he says to writhe in anguish at the fate of a distant cousin in England um, while the daughter is being raped in the back room. You know, and, and just that sense of the back room, I think, uh, really vividly captures what happened uh, in the U.S. empire during World War II, uh, partly for the parts of the U.S. empire that fell under uh, Japanese um, occupation, but also for the parts of the U.S. empire that didn't. So we don't really talk about this a lot, but in Alaska, there was an internment, and that internment was of Alaska natives, uh, and it was not because they were suspected of supporting the enemy in any way. It's just because they were in the way. Uh, and they were, um, so the Aleutian Island chain was evacuated and some other islands were as well, um, evacuated not of all residents, just of the uh, Alaska Native residents. And they were put in these, um, you know, barely operational camps uh, in, in, in the southern part of Alaska and just left to rot there, uh, died at a, you know, over the course of the war, 10% of them died, which was just an extraordinary, unconscionable number, mm. um, not because they'd been aiding the enemy, just because they were kind of in the way. And, you know, Alaska was, was informationally locked down during the war. Not a lot of people on the mainland were paying attention. So it just didn't make the news. There was very few people who outside of these camps who were paying attention to what was going on in them. Uh, Hawaii also suffered serious martial law during the entire war. Um, it was basically, you know, barbed wire sort of around, you know, the islands and, um, people weren't allowed to move at night. They weren't allowed to switch jobs. If they showed up late to work, they could be, Tried in front of a provost court where conviction rate was you know, 99% or so. Um, they could be, you know, forced to give blood, uh, forced to buy war bonds. Um, you know, all of this, the, the way in which uh, the U.S. empire was treated is distinctly different in terms of civil liberties, in terms of, um, you know, the value of people's lives uh, than the mainland. Uh, you know, you really feel that the, the empire in this moment just became a sort of sacrifice zone uh, to protect the United States. And the worst of it, not to go on, but this is really, I think, one of the most devastating things in U.S. history, and it's almost never in overviews or textbooks of the United States. Uh, the worst of it is the United States seeks to reconquer the Philippines. Uh, the Philippines will be let independent, but it's, it's currently uh, in, uh, in Japanese control, and the United States is going to reconquer it and run its flag back up the flagpole. Um, but in doing so, it uh, the military makes the decision to value the lives of um, the uh, officers and men above the lives, significantly above the lives of U.S. nationals, i.e. the Filipinos who inhabit the Philippines. So it adopts a sort of protective strategy of just rather than engaging the Japanese in small arms fire, just 
uh, shelling and bombing buildings and, and large parts of, you know, we know the most about Manila, uh, where block by bloody block, block is turned into a pulp. And, um, you know, the Japanese are killed, but a, a lot of Filipinos are killed. Uh, in a, in a month in the fighting in Manila, um, you know, Japanese are butchering Filipinos in the street. Um, but the U.S. is just sort of shelling building after building. Um, you know, 100,000 Filipinos die. I mean, that's the sixth largest city in the United States at the time. Uh, and, and it's death, literally decimated. One in 10, you know, uh, Manilans, as far as you can tell, uh, die in a month. Uh, and many of them die from friendly fire. Um, partly because that, that sense of, you know, who, whose lives matter and who doesn't, who's in the back room and who's not, um, you know, th- that's not just, you know, in, that doesn't just affect strategy, that affects tactics, that just affects everything at every level, um, in terms of how the United States is fighting the war. And I found this really, uh, devastating account of, of the aftermath of the war. And let me just point out this thing before I say it. Uh, the war, World War II in, in the Philippines killed, we don't have great numbers on this, but it killed something like 1.5 million people, over a million of whom were Filipino, and uh, you know a good number of whom died in the in the vicious reconquest uh, from friendly fire. That's the most violent event that has ever happened on U.S. soil. That's like two civil wars, you know, and and the four wars. It's four years. It's about the amount of time of the civil war. Uh, it was extraordinarily violent, tragic time, and it barely makes a dent. On U.S. history, as familiarly told, when people are sort of, you know, just telling the story of the country, uh, because people don't usually, when they do that, they don't usually think of the Philippines as part of what the unit of analysis. Um, anyway, just to put a final uh, cherry on top of this, I uh, I found this memoir of this uh, this guy had been a child at the time, a, a Filipino um, who'd been in Manila, and you remember this GI in the aftermath of the destruction of Manila, the sixth largest city in the United States. You remember this GI just walking the streets. And, you know, handing out chocolate to the kids. And this guy, who was a kid, uh, said, well, thank you very much. And the GI looked at him and was sort of perplexed. And we have other accounts that report similar things. And the GI said, I, how did you, how do you know English? How do you, you speak English beautifully? How do you speak English? And then the kid explains, well, I, you know, when you guys colonized us, you brought over these teachers and I, you know, I learned English in the schools and that's how I speak English. And the GI is, even more perplexed. He's like, wait, you colonized me? Like, he does it, like, at the end of like, this whole thing, he's just seen some of the worst fighting of World War II. He's been shipped over, you know, across the Pacific. He's been given maps. He's been, you know, told whom to shoot. And at no point did it dawn on him that the people that he was essentially liberating are U.S. nationals. He thought he was invading a foreign country. I mean, that is extraordinary. That is absolutely a sort of perfect epitaph for, for the war, right? For what the war is from the point of view of the man. That's fascinating. Now, there's a term you start to employ at the end of the war in 1945, this term pointillist empire. And there's a dramatic change that goes on in empires all across the globe in this period, but especially in U.S. empire. What does that mean? Yeah, so um, after 1945, there is a general global process of decolonization, whereby um, the imperial powers give up some territories, uh, change their constitutional relationship to others. Uh, but what you see is um, colonial empires, so the holding of populated territories as a major form of power projection wanes and wanes considerably. And a lot of that has to do, let's just be honest, with the revolt of the colonized worldwide. Um, you know, World War II especially just destabilized empires, um, put arms in the hands of former colonized subjects, and it just became extremely hard 
from the perspective of the would-be imperialists to hold and maintain colonies. And so you see, you know, the dismantling of the British Empire, the contraction of the French Empire, and that happens in the United States too. It happens in a slightly different way. Um, the Philippines, the largest uh, colony by by an order of magnitude, uh, is given independence in 1946. Um, the Hawaii and Alaska, interestingly, become states, which is a sort of ambiguous process and you know frustrating to um, a lot of uh, Hawaiians and you know the indigenous people of Hawaii uh, who you know feel very vocal about their uh, desire for independence and understandably so. Uh, but it does extend more rights. Uh, to Hawaii and Alaska, and, and they become remarkably sort of discontiguous states of the United States, something that wasn't clear that was going to happen uh, in the 1910s or 1920s. Uh, Puerto Rico gets a different constitutional relationship to the United States. It ostensibly becomes a commonwealth, which gets it off the United Nations list of non-self-governing territories. Um, and this might just be a sort of happy story of the end of territorial empire, uh, if you're into that kind of thing. But the, what's interesting is at the same time, United as it's divesting, not fully, but it's divesting remarkably it's from colonial empire, as it's distancing itself from that mode of power projection, the United States uh, invests seriously in, an, in another mode of power projection, which is uh, military bases and control of islands. Uh, so World War II leaves the United States in control of um, thousands or you know around 2,000, we think, uh, overseas base sites. Um, many of them were granted to the United States uh, under conditions of um, you know, wartime duress, and uh, the United States would sort of use them to fight the war. But the U.S. actually holds on to a lot of those bases and then, you know, kind of reshuffles the basing structure and takes some more and gives up some. Uh, but to this day, the United States has, we think, it's hard to tell because some of these bases are secret, but around 800 overseas bases, uh, 800 foreign bases uh, in, you know, in islands and in other uh, in foreign countries. And that's, you know, if you add up, as far as I, you know, can tell, uh, if you if you add up all those bases and all the remaining overseas territories of the United States, bases like Puerto Rico and Guam and American Samoa and the Commonwealth of Northern Mariana Islands, if you add all that up, in terms of sheer acreage, you'd still have less uh, land than the state of Connecticut. It's not a lot of land, but those points, those hundreds of points, just all over the surface of the planet, those are really important. Um, they're important for force projection, for uh, the U.S. military to move uh, its its things, its people, uh, its weapons. Um, important as you know, places for it to store uh, nuclear devices and to um, you know threaten uh, overflights from those places. Uh, but as I discovered, it's also those little points. The pointillist empire of the United States is also really important in global history. There's a lot of events in global history that you can't fully understand unless you understand them as reactions to United States' basing empire. I wonder the different ways that technology contribute to this too, because there's there's a technological revolution that you're also documenting here. Um, and what's going on there? Yeah, that's right. So I said uh, one really important reason why the United States distanced itself after World War II from colonial empire, it doesn't completely divest itself of colonies, uh, but it does uh, shrink the size of its empire. Uh, is is the revolt of the colonized, both inside the um, U.S. borders, inside the U.S. empire, uh, and and outside, just sort of you know in, in China, in um, uh, you know Southeast Asia, um, in you know a little later on in in, in, in Africa. Um, but at the same time, the United States is developing, and particularly in World War II, developing 
a really extraordinary set of technologies that allow it to project power into far into the world without controlling large swaths of territory. So at the same time, as the revolt of the colonized drives the cost of colonies up, uh, these new technologies uh, drive the demand for colonies down and allow the United States to do what it seeks to do strategically, uh, just in controlling small territory. So uh, I'll give you uh, uh, three quick examples. One really extraordinary set of technologies is synthetics. We only think about it in this way, but um, one reason why it was so important to have control of colonies, you know, going into the you know the 1930s and that, you know 1940s, uh, is that colonies were often the source of strategically really important materials, the kinds of things that you needed, absolutely needed, if you wanted to fight a war. So the classic example of this is rubber. Um, when the uh, United States is you know goes to war with Japan after Pearl Harbor, the United States is cut off by Japanese conquest from you know like 95 to 97% of its rubber supply. And immediately, this is a national crisis. FDR is thinking, you know, how are we going to fight this war if we don't have rubber? Because everything needs rubber. Battleships need rubber. Tanks need rubber. Jeeps need rubber. And they need a lot of it. And they need a lot of it, not just for like big obvious things like tires, but they need it for all kinds of little things uh, that, such that it's actually quite hard to imagine uh, fighting a war without rubber. Uh, and so the United States just, you know, has like scrap rubber drives, you know, dogs' bones and raincoats and boots and you know, you know, anything that anyone's got lying around, spare tires. Uh, these often been handed over to the government, which is going to repurpose them and use them to fight the war. Uh, there's an attempt to try to uh, find ways to grow rubber, but not from trees and rubber plantations, which take you know six to seven years to come to maturity. Uh, but from other plants, this is like the botanical version of the Manhattan Project, involving you know roughly the same number of scientists. Um, but ultimately, what the United States does is something that no one really thought you could do, was that it actually figures out a way to just mass produce uh, synthetic rubber and very high quality synthetic rubber uh, from petroleum, which the United States has a lot of from oil. Mm. And so, you know, a few years into the war, suddenly it's completely solved its rubber problem uh, with synthetic rubber. And, you know, similarly, it solves any number of other, you know, colonial product problems. You know, what do you do after you can't get silk? Uh, from Japan, how do you make your parachutes? Uh, well, it turns out you can make them with plastic, in this case, nylon. Uh, and the United States Army uh, and the uh, armed forces just, you know, basically go through the entire inventory and replace thing after thing uh, that you could only, you know, quinine, uh, uh, um, just, uh, you know, like hemp, uh, all these products with uh, synthetic substitutes. Uh, and so basically what the United States does is sort of affects a chemistry for colonies swap, whereby strategically it is no longer that dependent on foreign and tropical lands uh, because it just has the chemical capacity to generate a lot of that stuff synthetically. So that really drives down uh, the demand for colonies. At the same time, uh, the United States figures out uh, ways to move information, things, and people without controlling the entire route along which it's uh, moving them. One reason why um, Empire was so strategically important going into World War II is that it guaranteed, you know, if you had a lot of foreign territories uh, or overseas territories, uh, they could be safe spots uh, where you could, you know, move things through. Um, and, and that matters a lot in the age of steam and in the age of trains. 
where you sort of control, want to control the routes or in the age of telegraph cables where you have to have a contiguous route if you want to deliver information from point A to point B. What the United States gets really good at is discontiguous technologies, non-surface hugging technologies. So in uh, communication, it's radio rather than telegraphy. So you don't have to control the entire line uh, and all the territory in between these two points. You just broadcast uh, from one point, uh, you know, pick up the broadcast and send it along from another, and it will finally reach its destination. You can do that with just a few beacons uh, and a few transceivers. Uh, similarly, the United States gets really predominant in aviation, uh, replacing trains, replacing roads uh, for strategic purposes, replacing ships. It still uses these things, but ultimately it can it can get over enemy territory. It doesn't need to control all the territory in between to get to point A and point B if pressed. And the United States gets really good during World War II and after of, of just moving its things, moving its people uh, just by controlling a set of points. And that becomes um, the sort of thing that allows the United States to strategically still need a lot of little bits of territory, but not actually need, after World War II, large swaths of it in order to successfully stage its forces uh, all over the world. So is it true then, uh, there's a sort of article of faith that gets trotted out every now and then that I I think is sort of trite, that economics, free trade sort of make imperialism unnecessary and untenable after World War II. Does that hold true here or is it more complicated than that? Yeah, I mean, so I think you can see this most clearly in the question of synthetics. So I think it's a little... um, you miss a little if you just look at these questions economically, because my sense is that by the mid 20th century, a lot of the questions about to colonize or not to colonize or to control, to, you know, control territory by annexation or just to deal with it in some other way, some informal way. Uh, those questions sometimes are economic, but very often they're strategic. So, uh, you know, often when it push comes to shove, uh, the United States, you know, these questions you turn around, what if we really need this thing or this place? And we get it. Uh, and what the United States gets really good at with synthetics is basically ultimately not needing, uh, you know, rubber, for example. Yes, it still wants to trade for rubber and it still wants a global market in rubber because natural rubber is, is good quality and you can sometimes get it quite cheap. Uh, but ultimately, strategically, it doesn't need that. Uh, so it doesn't actually have to, in the end of the day, control foreign land in order to be assured that it will have enough rubber to, to fight a war. Uh, because, you know, if it gets cut off from all of its rubber supplies by, you know, market closures or by war, it can just turn on the taps and, you know, make new rubber. Uh, and so it's, it's not the, uh, the economics of it as much as the strategics of it, uh, that I think are so important to this decision of whether, uh, uh, a great power really needs to physically and formally control foreign territory in order to get what it needs done or whether it can, uh, you know, seek to Trade with it or control it through informal mechanisms such as, um, you know, client governments and, and foreign aid and that kind of thing, and military coups if necessary. So, what does this pointillist empire look like in the 21st century? It's still there. I mean, so there's, you know, in, well, first of all, it's a little hard because some of it's secret. Uh, but um, the United States has, we think, um, 800 overseas bases, and uh, and you know, they're not in every part of the world. Uh, there's large swaths of, you know. Russia and China, where there are no U.S. military bases, uh, but boy, they're in a lot of parts of the world. And you know, the countries that have blocked the United States out and have refused to allow the United States access uh, are often nevertheless surrounded by other countries that do. 
uh, you know, allow the United States in. So uh, even if uh, there's not a base in your country, uh, you know, it's, it's in a country nearby. And since the United States is getting better and better at uh, making longer and longer hops uh, between those uh, between those dots, uh, that's effective for force projection. Another a new, another new thing that we're seeing is I think the United States becoming a little less tethered to uh, physical land as it's able to use the um, use ships and aircraft carriers as floating bases and just sort of having them as you know this is kind of the platonic ideal of the U.S. base. Uh, no population, no indigenous population to worry about at all. Just you know, a floating, movable thing uh, that's somewhere out there and you know, full of planes, which can be you know, scrambled in any moment. <laughs> so I, I had a, just a few questions um, about content that was in the book, or sort of your interpretation. Um, one of the, I, I, I've always thought the United States relationship to Hawaii is fascinating, especially in the annexation. Yeah. It, 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 it sits astride these sort of really not not necessarily contradictory but just very divergent historical strands um you left hawaii's annexation for the most part out of this book why was that yeah that's right um and i'm so glad you mentioned that because i, I want to talk about that um the the story of uh the overthrow of the hawaiian monarchy and then the annexation of hawaii is it is such a dramatic story and um i take it as you know that it i, I believe it fits entirely with the sets of claims I'm making about the uh, chronology and the content of U.S. empire. but And I mention it, um, but I don't go into it. And that's not the only subject that I don't go into. Uh, the United States has a long occupation of Haiti that lasts mm-hmm. for 19 years. Um, I mention it, but I don't go into it. Uh, the United States also, I, you know, I talk about occupations and I talk uh, a, a bit about the U.S. Uh, occupation of Japan. I say very little about the occupations of sectors of Austria and Germany. Um, and I found myself having to make these kinds of calls quite a lot. Um, and when I first set out to write this, I thought, well, you know, I should just do it all. You know, I should just get the whole story down there. Um, and, and then I worried that that approach, that comprehensive approach, while it would be satisfying as a scholar, I, I worried it would, it would be alienating to the reader. Mm. Um, and I worried that I would, you know, kind of have to jump between, you know, I said, okay, you know, I've, I've told you about the uh, annexation of Puerto Rico. Now I want to tell you what that looks like in Hawaii. And then I want to make sure you understand it in Guam. And, you know, let's not omit when we're talking about World War One that we really have to get into the sort of the annexation of the U.S. Virgin Islands. Um, I just worry that that would be uh, feel too encyclopedic. Mm. So I decided that what I would instead do was try to invite the reader into the world, the, what I feel to be an absolutely fascinating world of the United States, but understood you know, in full rather than just as the, as the mainland, uh, through a, a series of, you know, kind of episodes. Um, and I would, I would focus on some episodes and not on others. And that, that decision in a lot of cases wasn't analytic. It wasn't that I thought, well, uh, you know, Hawaiian annexation doesn't really count or it doesn't really fit the story I'm telling. That wasn't the concern I had. Uh, I just tried to figure out, you know, which of these episodes, uh, first, can I be most interesting about which of them seem to capture uh, the kinds of stories I want to tell the best, but also which connect to other episodes that I want to tell so that the reader will have some sense of continuity. Um, a lot of times the choices I made were, you know, I, 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 I got very interested in this uh, way in which um, colonies can function as laboratories uh, for, uh, for the mainland. So professionals like architects and doctors can, can go work on them and can work with a, a kind of license that they wouldn't have, uh, you know, working on the mainland, uh, which they can use for good and I think often in some cases for ill. 
Uh, and I decided that, you know, there are many examples of this. There are many ways you can do it. You could talk about, uh, you know, Margaret Mead, the uh, anthropologist in uh, American Samoa. Uh, but I decided that I would talk about um, the architect Daniel Burnham and uh, people around him in the Philippines. And I would talk about uh, a, a doctor named Cornelius Rhodes in Puerto Rico. And part of the reason I made those decisions was that those two stories would connect up to stories that I wanted to tell a little later. So you'd get some continuity of character uh, and, and it would feel like this wasn't just, you know, a list of everything that happened in the U.S. empire, but rather, you know, there'd be some dramatic shape to the story. So, so that those were the kinds of decisions uh, that I found myself making and often they're quite painful ones because it's, you know, it's hard to look at the story of um, the overthrow of the Hawaiian monarchy and, and just leave that on the table and, and you know, leave that story untold. Um, and I hope that, you know, my fellow scholars will forgive me and, and realize that I wasn't trying to be comprehensive in, in the book, but um, just, you know, trying to tell a story that might invite a reader in. Mm. So there's there's um, one more question I want to pick your brain about, about this book, and it's it's sort of an ending note. You know, you, you end on this this humorous episode that I had actually forgotten about from 2008, in which it's pointed out that oh, yes. because John McCain is born in the Panama Canal Zone, there's this question of whether or not he can lay claim to citizenship. And it's, it's sort of arcane, but but nevertheless relevant. Um, and then you know, juxtaposed against that is, you know, as we all remember, the, the endless sort of conspiracy debates about whether or not Barack Obama was a citizen. And I'm, I'm sort of curious... Where, what, where is the dividing line between Americanness? You know, what is it about McCain's experience that um, sort of he can lay claim to citizenship so easily and yet Obama couldn't? Is it is the dividing line race or is it just the public's ability to understand how complicated this is? Where do you come down on this? Yeah, yeah. So let's just lay it out because the 2008 election is such an incredible event from the history of territorial empire. I mean, it's like almost, you know, all the colonial chickens coming home to roost at once. So, okay, what happens? First of all, you've got John McCain, who is born in the Panama Canal Zone, and he's a Zonian. Um, he doesn't live there long. It's not a big part of his identity, but it's part of his, you know, legal rap sheet. And, and what does it mean to be born in the Panama Canal Zone? Uh, okay, in order to be president, you have to be, the Constitution says, a natural-born citizen. What's a natural-born citizen? Supreme Court has never clarified what exactly that is. But we've never had a president who wasn't from a state. Every president that we've had has been from uh, a state and not a territory. There's, there have been presidential candidates, who, like Barry Goldwater, who was born in the territory of Arizona before it became a state. Uh, but we've never actually had a president that wasn't born in a state. And it seems to be that whatever natural born citizen means, it seems like, and that's most legal scholars would agree, I'm not just you know, telling what I feel, um, that you actually have to be a citizen at the moment of your birth. Uh, you can't just be a citizen by virtue of your birth. You have to be a citizen when you are born. You are born a citizen. So here's the tricky thing. Uh, John McCain is born in the Panama Canal Zone, and he's born to citizen parents. And you might think, okay, he's born to citizen parents. Anyone who's born to citizen parents is a citizen. But actually, there's not a single law that says that. There's a patchwork of laws, and those laws themselves have exceptions. Uh, and one of the exceptions uh, in um, when McCain is born is that there's a law that uh, someone born of citizen parents outside the uh, sovereignty and jurisdiction of the United States is a citizen. Okay, but McCain's not born outside of the jurisdiction of the United States. He's born in the Panama Canal Zone, which is leased to the United States. It's quite clearly under U.S. jurisdiction. Okay, then you think, 
well, he's born in the United States then, and that makes him a citizen. Uh-uh, because the insular cases say uh, that the uh, Constitution and the 14th Amendment extend uh, only to part of the country and not to the whole country. And John McCain is born in that extra constitutional zone. So Congress realizes this and has a debate. And it's not just a pro forma thing. It's not just a loophole that they're, you know, suddenly, whoops, you know, they have to close. It's a debate. Uh, should these people be citizens? And, and Congress has the debate. And in 1937, passes a law saying, okay, if you're born to citizen parents in the Panama Canal Zone, you are a U.S. citizen. Not only uh, that, but anyone who'd been previously born under these circumstances, basically, you know, uncovered by any law, um, also gets to be retroactively is made a citizen. So that law passes in 1937, and John McCain is born in 1936. So when he's born, there is no law that makes him a citizen. I mean, eventually he, by virtue of that law, becomes a citizen, but there's no law that makes him a citizen. And there was some news about, you know, is John McCain really eligible? Um, a lot of that news just said, well, he's born, you know, in the territory and does that count? And, and then it was sort of quickly uh, resolved. You, you, you know, he's born to citizen parents, it's fine. But but this, you know, there's a, uh, Gabriel Chin is a legal historian who figured all of this out. And that is, once you actually do all the math on that, it's a really compelling legal challenge. Uh, to uh, whether McCain was, and that, and it wasn't really given a full public hearing. It certainly wasn't giving a legal hearing. Uh, and but, but then just okay. So McCain has a really interesting empire problem, and it is entirely symptomatic of how the empire works. It's often uh, the territories of the United States or the bases of the United States are legally anomalous places where interesting things happen, and McCain is a really good example of that. And he, then he chooses as his running mate Sarah Palin, who's the governor of Alaska, which had been a U.S. territory, uh, and had been a U.S. territory until 1959. Uh, Palin's not born in Alaska, so she moves there. She's clearly a U.S. citizen. Uh, she moved to Alaska. She falls in love with a guy there who is part Alaska Native. He's part Yupik, Todd Palin. We don't really talk about this a lot, uh, but uh, their children are also legally Alaska Native. So Sarah Palin has a mixed family. Uh, and she talks about this when she's campaigning for governor. I mean, this is something she's very proud of, and she makes a lot of it. Um, but partly because of uh, Todd's you know, background in colonial entanglements, uh, Todd is for years the member of uh, the Alaska Independence Party, um, which argues that because Alaska natives didn't all vote on whether Alaska should become a state, uh, statehood is illegitimate, and uh, perhaps Alaska should become independent. Which is kind of, so she's married to a secessionist. And then it turns out that Sarah Palin has attended, you know, meetings of the Alaska Independence Party and has actually, you know, given a sort of YouTube address, you know, good luck. You know, we think your party is really important part of politics here in Alaska. Uh, so that's very interesting. I mean, that's an incredible sort of colonial backstory that also, you know, exemplifies the sort of legacies of that in the United States. And, uh, both of them amazingly sail through this, right? You know, McCain's a war hero. Sarah Palin is, you know, an eager defender of what she calls the real America. And many of these issues are reported, uh, but they don't become really destabilizing. What does become destabilizing uh, is what happens for Barack Obama. And that's in some ways kind of surprising, right? He's born in Hawaii, but only it's slightly after Hawaii becomes a state. So he doesn't have the McCain problem. Uh, and uh, although Hawaii has a really serious sovereignty movement uh, to this day, uh, Barack Obama does not engage with it in the way that um, the Palins do. And so he doesn't have the Sarah Palin problem, um, but he is a non-white person uh, who has a really um, sort of racially mixed and cosmopolitan extended family. 
uh, and he's from a Pacific Island. Uh, and that's enough, I think, to make him seem, in the eyes of his political opponents, foreign. Uh, and he's accused of being not born in the United States. Now, the accusation is he's born in Kenya. Um, but I think a lot of that accusation has to do with, it's not just that he's black. I mean, there's, we had black political figures before who are not accused of being not born in the United States. Uh, it's, I think the fact that he is someone with, uh, you know, unusual for the, from the perspective of mainland parentage, uh, you know, he's a child of a, uh, interracial marriage that would have been illegal in many uh, U.S. states at the time he was born. Um, and his location in the Pacific, that that sort of single him out for suspicion in this way. And um, we actually have the uh, the memo from uh, the Hillary Clinton's campaign when she was running against him uh, for the Democratic nomination, where her um, uh, campaign strategist, uh, Mark Penn, argued that Barack Obama, by virtue of his birth, um, wasn't really fully American, and that Hillary Clinton should make a lot of this on the campaign trail. Now, to her credit, Hillary Clinton did not do this, uh, but it was Clinton's supporters who uh, first started circulating emails uh, suggesting that uh, Barack Obama was not eligible for the presidency because he was not born in the United States, and then it, um, in the general elections, hopped political lines. And incredibly, that's the issue that made Donald Trump presidential material. So you can just trace this line, McCain, Palin, Obama, a little bit Clinton, Trump, and you can see all the ways in which these people have been affected, and actually often in deep ways, by the history of U.S. colonialism. I mean, it's a, it's a real reminder that uh, the you know, U.S. overseas territory hasn't just been peripheral to U.S. history, it's been central to it. Um, but you know, to answer your question, I think you're, I think you're right, that it's, it's interesting who these issues hit and who they don't. And I think it's quite clear that um, you know, if Barack Obama had been, I mean, there's another kid who's born in the same day he's born um, uh, in, in Honolulu, whose last name is Simpson. You know, I presume that kid was white. If Barack Obama had been that guy, Mr. Simpson, uh, I think he would have had a lot less trouble. But the fact that Barack, you know, I mean, if you look at the other babies who were born that time, there are a lot of babies with, uh, you know, all kinds of names, uh, Chinese names, Japanese names, Hawaiian names, in case of Barack Obama, an African name, uh, who were born in Honolulu that day. And that's a, that's a fact about Hawaii. Uh, and the kind of, um, you know, uh, racial and uh, ethnic and national configuration that happens in Hawaii in this U.S. territory uh, that makes it distinct from other parts of the U.S. mainland. Great answer. Um, I just wanted to ask, and I know it might be bad form because you've just gotten this book out, but I'm curious, is there anything you're thinking of working on next? Yes. One of the fire. 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 I, 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 I am contemplating writing a history of uh, fires in the 19th century, um, and particularly urban mm -hmm. fires. Um, I live in Chicago, which is a city that burned down in 1871, also burned down in 1874. Uh, and that is not unusual of Chicago. I mean, one, one thing is striking about the United States in the age of settler colonialism uh, is how rapidly if cities went up, how rapidly uh, these cities were populated. Uh, they were often made of wood uh, and they were crowded and, and they just burned down all the time. So I'm really interested in writing about that century of U.S. history, the 19th century, where the United States is experiencing enormous growth in terms of its population. I mean, it seems to be a sort of, you know, blessed among nations, as Eric Lauchway puts it, uh, but at the same time is, is skirting constant ecological chastisement. I mean, the number of people who've lived through serious urban fires 
who've lost homes, who've, who've just seen it all burn down, is a really non-trivial number of people. And, and I'm interested in, in exploring that contradiction, what it's like to live in a, a country that is growing explosively, growing faster than any country had ever grown before, at least measured by population, uh, but is also just teetering at the edge of utter catastrophe. Yeah, one's tempted to draw all sorts of connections to our own environmental catastrophes. Oh, one is. Oh, one is. I'll look forward to. I'll look forward to seeing this project come to fruition. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. An absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. <laughs>